If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Now, listen, they want me to say hello. Welcome to the James Well Best Bits of Tonight's show. I wish you can hear every night, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio from 7 till 10. But I said, wouldn't it be best to call it the worst of whale? So have a listen. See what you think. Labour MP for Wolverhampton. Uh, Pat, good evening to you. Good evening. How much longer can this go on? <laughs> it's a fair question. I don't um, set the timetable for these things, but I, I appreciate your question. It does seem to be taking quite a while. Um, I'm afraid we won't get a result of this until the 4th of April. Why? Why is that taking so long after... I don't know, to be honest. It's just when they do a postal ballot, they give people a few weeks to to return them, and it Mm. it makes the whole thing last quite a long time. So it's time to change your mind. (laughs) You can't change it once you vote. You can't change your mind. No, you can't do that. Got to take your first answer. Yes. So who are you going for? Well, I um, I will vote for Keir Starmer in the in the leadership election, mm. and I'll vote for Ian Murray in the deputy leadership election. Do you wish there were more people who were standing as leadership contenders or not? Well, I my fear about the contest is that it's been a bit becalmed, and I wonder if it's focused on the right question, because we had such a terrible election result a couple of months ago, the worst Labour result since 1935, you would expect a a leadership contest after that to be almost a battle between candidates to see who could change the most from the policy outlook and the direction and the worldview that had led to that result and that people would be displaying real hunger for that kind of change. But we haven't really seen that. Uh, We've seen lots of appeals for unity, which is fine, but you've got to be unified in the right direction. And I think maybe we haven't had a deep enough debate about the direction that the Labour Party needs to go in now. What do you think about a lot of young people, uh, Pat, who are saying they're going to vote for uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey because she is carrying on what... Jeremy Corbyn was doing, and they think that's the best thing for the Labour Party. Well, I, I don't claim to know how members are going to vote in this, so I don't know. I don't know how you can know that young people are more likely to vote for Rebecca Long Bailey than one of the other two candidates. But what I would say is that carrying on the 
outlook, the worldview, the policy platform, and all the rest of it that helped us lose so disastrously a couple of months ago would be the worst possible response to defeat. I mean, they say that uh, success is a poor teacher mm-hmm. and defeat should teach us a lesson. Well, you're not learning any lessons if you carry on with the same thing, just with a different face and voice. Why have so many people kind of thought that it was like, it was the same back in the uh, late 70s, 80s with Michael Foote, if you're old enough to remember that. Um, And lots of young people got very excited about this idea of real hard socialism. But the majority of us in this country, we don't want to. Well, you know, I, I can't speak so much about the foot period, but um, I think that one thing I, I remember when the manifesto was launched in the election just a few months ago, Mr. Corbyn said, this is the programme that has been blocked for decades by elites. And when it was put to the people, it wasn't mm. blocked by elites. It was rejected by the people who... Uh, voted for the Conservative Party's policies and stance instead. So I think the Labour Party needs a real fundamental reappraisal after such a shock and defeat. And I'm not sure so far whether the leadership contest that we've had has has embodied that fundamental reappraisal. They, they appear to be shying away a bit from discussing the extent of change needed in worldview, in policy, in culture, from top to bottom, really. That's what I think that we need. Are they scared if they do that, they'll lose the vote, the leadership vote? Do you think that's what it is? Yeah, I think that's a part of it. uh, They think there may be a difference between the selectorate and the electorate. But there's a problem in thinking like that, because insofar as the public are looking at this at all, they want to see a signal from change from the Labour Party. Remember, the public have just emphatically rejected Labour's offer in a general election a few months ago. And if the signal that they see is, well, we're going to carry on with most of that, then that's simply a signal for the public to turn away again. And that's the last thing that I want, because if we're in perpetual opposition, trying to make ourselves feel comfortable, then we're not doing our job. The Labour Party's not in existence to make itself feel good, it's in existence to win elections and make change for the better. The James Whale Show. Come praise the whale on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Stuart. We can find out. Uh, Stuart, good evening. Good evening, James. So why a former MP, Stuart? What did you do to annoy everybody? Uh, I uh, got caught in the crossfire of Theresa May's disastrous decision to have an early election in 2017. Oh, dear, I am sorry. Um, Are you going to come back some point in the near future? I doubt it, but, um, you know, I had a good... I'm a a glass-half-full kind of guy. I had a good 12 years. Oh, well, that's all right. ...being an MP, so it's not the end of the world. No, that's not... You get a good pension, then. Yeah, that's not bad, Sue. You have a good good little pension tucked away there for when you need it. Well, I've had a... You know, I've had several careers. I had two careers before I became an MP. I've got another career now doing stuff outside... Mm -hmm. Uh, being uh, a, a member of parliament and you know I've been very fortunate to do a job I or do several jobs I've really loved. How old are you Stuart? I'm 55. You will be able to uh, retire fairly soon on all those different pensions from all those different jobs. <laughs> James you're not the first person to say that but uh, oh. I'm not really ready for my cocoa and slippers yet. I'm, uh, I'm I'd like to think I'm quite active 55. 
No, no, you don't need cocoa and slippers. But think of where you can be out there raving, you can be yeah. in the nightclubs, yeah, yeah. you don't have to worry about getting up, up early night. in the morning. That's what yeah. Ash and I do every night. Well, I can imagine, and you've never invited me to your parties, but I'm, I'm not quite Stuart, ready for if you When you retire, then we'll be welcome. Stuart, if you want to come with us one night, you just yeah. have to say the word, come on the programme live, and when we finish, we'll go partying. Yeah. Well, I'll just ask Mrs. Jackson what she thinks. Bring her along. Bring her along, yeah. Yeah, You know, that'll be fun. More the merrier. Uh, Now, on a more serious note, um, you were a a special advisor as well. Yeah. Now, how many of these special advisors, particularly the younger ones, I'm talking about those who've left university, come in and become advisors or spads or whatever they become and start telling the MPs how they should should behave and what they should do... um, that seems to me to be really strange. Can't MPs make their own minds up? I don't think it's quite, if I may say so, James, quite as simple as that. What SPADs do, they're the sort of interface between ministers who are very busy because they're sitting MPs, they've got their own constituencies, they've got a big portfolio that they're looking after, whether it's work and pensions or justice or whatever. And... The SPADs are the interface between them and professional full-time civil servants. Now, professional full-time civil servants are in the business of doing what the government ministers tell them to do, but they don't always see eye to eye with those government ministers. Mm. One of the SPADs' jobs is to try and put a political spin on the policy that was in the manifesto that's put the government into power and say to the officials, look, this is what the minister wants to happen. And so they do do quite a good job. But who do, hang on, who do, these mini, who do these civil servants think they are when they're told to do something by the elected representatives of the people? Who the hell do these people think they are? A very good question. Often, I mean, I hear the story several times when I was a spad and also when I left, that often uh, senior civil servants would say behind the backs of ministers, why do they have to go into the House of Commons? Why do they have to go over there and vote? Why do they have to give a speech? They should be here doing the work here with us. Often, because they're so passionate about a particular policy area, they actually don't realise they're dealing with living, breathing, practising professional politicians who have to be accountable to their electorate and to Parliament. So there is going to be a tension there between, you know, those politicians and and full-time civil servants who take the view that whatever happens at an election, they're still going to be in place running the civil service and that department. Mm-hmm. So they're running things and yeah. they know what's best out of it. But, you know, it. that needs to stop. And yeah. I think this whole thing, I mean, the idea that Pretty Patel, she's a tough cookie, no doubt about it, and she you, you need to be a tough cookie to be the Home Secretary. Uh, if the civil servant, so whatever his name is, uh, can't handle it and then start saying, oh, I'll be bullied. He doesn't deserve to be in the job, in my view, does he? No, and I think this is nonsense about Pretty Patel. What they don't like is she's a tough, focused, right-of-centre, principled politician who is committed to Brexit, committed to putting criminals in prison and terrorists and protecting the public and doing it her way on the basis of an electoral mandate that the Conservatives got last December... And these people in the parts of the senior civil service do not like to be challenged. They don't like people uh, to challenge their worldview, which is often a very liberal worldview. 
that, you know, prison doesn't work, that the Tories are too right-wing, they're too draconian, they're too extreme. And when you have someone as tough as Pretty Patel, who I've known for many, many years, she doesn't bully people, but she knows her own mind and she wants the job done. Yeah. And quite, quite understandably, she's the Home Secretary, she's not a patsy, and she wants things to get done uh, that she asked for. The James Whale Show. Come praise the whale on Talk Radio. What are your thoughts on this, Mark? I mean, this man has almost been tried before he even got to court, hasn't he? Well, I think so. There's there's been some speculation about it, but that really has come from a sort of course of conduct, if you like, which was very similar in many cases. And that similar fact evidence was weighed into this case. So I don't think it unduly... Mm. Uh, prejudiced the jury in this particular instance. But what we do have is a finding of guilt in relation to rape. Um, uh, And I think uh, listeners should really understand that this is a very serious uh, uh, offence for which he's been found guilty. And although it's not uh, first-degree rape, first-degree rape involves some kind of um, physical fighting in the sense of Mm. Uh, beating someone up or holding a knife knife or gun at them. Um, So there's an additional offence being committed, if you like. So that's why it's regarded... But it's third degree, this says. Yeah. Yeah, Well, second degree, then. But because it's third degree, people shouldn't think it's any less rape than it is. It is a very serious offence. Of course. It is a sexual assault offence, in fact. And again, that has... uh, carries a sentence of up to 25 years imprisonment. And, of course, many people get less for murder. So that gives you, again, an idea of where this sits on the, um, the sort of list of uh, mm. offences that you might be committed. So I think a lot of people is going to jail for a long time. Sorry, Mark, a lot of people must have been covering up what he did. Are they not in some way responsible as well? Well, I suspect we will see coming out of the back of this some civil litigations about that. We'll also see them against his estate, and I suspect also his company, which would be, as his employer, responsible for many of the activities that he undertook because he was behaving and abusing his position as the chief executive of uh, of his company. So mm. I think that is part of it. But I think the other thing we should just bear in mind is that this is only chapter one. Chapter two is that in Los Angeles there's a similar (coughs) slew of offences coming up for trial. Um, And I suspect that whilst he has the benefit of the presumption of innocence, I suspect we'll see some guilty verdicts come out of that. And then, of course, the third chapter is that there are um, investigations in London and also in Italy Uh, So that could be further chapters, although I suspect if he is sentenced to something like 25 to 50 years in prison, which Mm. is by no means uh, an unexpected sentence, then in those circumstances we wouldn't subject the British victims to a further trial because they would have to be abused by going through and reliving that story in the witness box. And, of course, the last chapter will be his appeal Mm. because, of course, he has... Nothing to lose now. He may as well appeal. There's only an upside for him, and I think that's where we go next. 
I mean, we were talking about a hundred and was it hundred and seventy-seven years in prison or something? Twenty-nine like that. now, I think you can get. Yeah, yeah, it, but yeah. I mean, was why do they say th they do that often in America? I never understood why. Well, I think it's to mark um, the horror of the offence. It's to um, punish, obviously, but it was also um, about um, sending a message to other potential perpetrators of similar crimes uh, that. You know, if you if you perpetrate these kind of horrific uh, crimes that are an abusive position, then you will go to jail for a very long time, and you will be taken out of circulation. But also, I think in some respects, it's something of a vindication for those women who have uh, been abused by him and have had to stand up and uh, say, "Me too." Do we need to change the non-disclosure laws? Because it's abused, isn't it, in America and over here. It's used because it's meant to be used to prevent company secrets getting out, but they use it for, obviously, other reasons. Yes, they do. I mean, so, for example, Weinstein's uh, non-disclosure agreement, uh, and I represented a client involved in this, says that, you know, after um, a rape uh, allegation or attempted rape and uh, a serious sexual assault similar to the one that was uh, um, perpetrated on Miriam Halley, uh, then in those circumstances, um, she couldn't talk to a lawyer, she couldn't talk to a doctor, she couldn't talk to a therapist, she couldn't talk to her family, her friends, her most intimate folks, uh, and she couldn't even confess and tell <laughs> a priest. So I think that tells you the sort of level of control that he was seeking to reach beyond uh, the incidents, and of course one of the reasons that it was covered up was, apart from the lawyers who drafted these appalling documents, very few people knew because they were all hidden away. So the next woman who was abused didn't know about the previous one because it was all secret. And that's one of the reasons I think we need um, reform to non-disclosure law. That was uh, the clips for today, the worst of whale, or sorry, sorry, the best of James Whale. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed them. Well, I suppose if you didn't enjoy them, you won't be listening, will you? Anyway, I'll be back 7 o'clock until 10, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.